Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 11, that's what we'll be considering uh, this morning. You know, it's not surprising that in a culture of images and sound bites and 30-second advertisements and Twitter feeds that are limited to 50 words or less that we find ourselves surrounded by symbols and slogans. We're confronted with so many symbols and slogans uh, on a moment-by-moment basis that we rarely, if ever, stop to think about the actual content or the truth or the meaning of those kinds of slogans. For example, I mean, is it really true that if we shop at Walmart, we'll live better? Does anybody really believe that? I mean, I actually try to avoid Walmart most of the time. So is that making some kind of statement about the sad and impoverished state of my existence that I don't go to Walmart and I can't live better? Frosted Lucky Charms, a cereal of symbols. They're magically delicious. I've had Lucky Charms a couple times in my life. They're not really that delicious. They're definitely not magically delicious. And in my experience, I don't think I would describe insurance companies as being anything like a good neighbor. Because good neighbors don't ask me a hundred questions in my time of need and make me feel like they're trying to do everything possible to avoid actually helping me. But you know, with these symbols and slogans, we as Christians have our own symbols and slogans. We wear them as jewelry and we put them on our license plates. But again, we rarely, if ever, stop to think about the actual content or truth or meaning of these symbols. That becomes problematic because the cross is never intended to be merely symbolic for a Christian. And in God we trust is never intended just to be this kind of pious-sounding slogan that we toss around. The cross and in God we trust are to be characteristic of our lives. They're to be ways of life for us as we seek to be disciples of Jesus. But it's way easier to wear a cross around our neck than to actually bear a cross for the sake of Jesus. And it's way easier to put in God we trust in our license plates to actually do it. Because the truth is, we have difficulty trusting God at times, don't we? It's a hard for us to trust in God and to live lives that reflect that trust in God. But we find help in Joshua chapter 11 in which Israel finds themselves in the midst of the conquest battles to drive out the Canaanites and to enter into the promised land as their inheritance. And we, like them, find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual battle, entering in to claim our inheritance, and we are confronted with opposition. But along with the Israelites in Joshua chapter 11, as God's people, we learn that we can trust in God because he's trustworthy. We want to see from Joshua 11 that we can trust in God because he is trustworthy. So let's listen to what Joshua 11 has to say to us this morning. Uh, It's 23 verses long, so I'm going to allow you just to remain seated, but you can uh, follow along in your scriptures, or if you don't have a Bible with you uh, in your seats this morning, uh, the passage will be uh, displayed. Actually, maybe it's not going to be displayed. We don't have it on the screen. So I hope you have a Bible this morning uh, for Joshua chapter 11. Again, all 23 verses. So hear the word of God this morning. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, 
He sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who are in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kinaroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphath Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephoth Ma'im, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, and as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and now the preaching of your word, that we may behold marvelous things and that you might give us hearts to respond in love, adoration, worship, obedience, and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Joshua 11 proclaims, in God we trust. That's what the chapter is about. And so I want us to see three things in connection with trusting God this morning. We're going to look at the requirement of trusting in God. We're also going to see the response of trusting in God, and then finally conclude with the result of trusting in God. But I want us to begin with the requirement of trusting in God. 
Uh, for starters, keep in mind that Joshua is a book that records Israel's crossing of the Jordan River after wandering 40 years in the wilderness under the supervision of Moses. And after crossing the Jordan, uh, we read of the conquering of that land and the allotment of that land that the Lord God promised and is giving to the Israelites under the supervision of Joshua after Moses died. Now the actual conquest of the land itself is recorded in the book of Joshua beginning with the city of Jericho, which we read in chapter 6 of Joshua, and the conquests continue being recorded through chapter 12. Now in chapter 10, just the chapter before the one we read, we read about a military campaign in which Israel claims some of the southern territories in the land of promise. And now in chapter 11, we read a very similar yet distinct account of how Israel claims territories in the northern part of the promised land. Specifically in chapter 11, we're reading about this kind of coalition that's formed uh, among the Canaanite peoples, a Canaanite coalition that's led by Jabin the king of Hazor, and he forms this coalition because he's heard about the success and victories that Israel has enjoyed in the southern campaign in the previous chapter. And as a kind of ringleader, he is calling out these other kings and armies from the surrounding regions to join him in opposition to Israel. Now, Hazor itself, we read, is, is one of the leaders of, of all these kinds of things. And so, Hazor itself is a rather formidable city. It's a well-populated, estimated population of about 40,000 people during the time of Joshua. And so added then to the threat of Hazor itself is all, all of these other kings and all these other armies and all these other areas that are aligning themselves against Israel. So that the opposition that faces Israel is quite daunting in chapter 11 of Joshua. Just how daunting is this opposition they're facing? Well, look with me in verse 4. It says that they, these kings and these armies, came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Now, we're getting all of these details about this coalition and all of these kings and the size of their armies and the many horses and the chariots primarily to tell us one thing in chapter 11. And that's this, that Israel is outmatched. The writer of Joshua is painting this picture in which the chances of Israel's success here seems very, very bleak. The northern Canaanite peoples have both numerical and technological superiority to Israel with these horses and these chariots. But it's precisely against this kind of overwhelming opposition, in the face of these kinds of hopeless circumstances, against these kinds of insurmountable odds, that we are forced to see beyond ourselves and our own strength and our own resources, and we see the requirement of trusting in God. It's against the backdrop of these kinds of situations that we see this requirement. It's easy to say that we trust in God when we're not facing any kind of challenge, any kind of difficulty, any kind of hardship, any kind of strong opposition. But it's really when we see that we're really trusting in God, when we encounter situations that we can't handle on our, in our own strength or in our own ability, our weakness and powerlessness is exposed by situations. And then we see the requirement of trusting in God. When we're facing strong peer pressure to succumb to sin. When we're encountering limiting physical weakness or disability. We're diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. When we're suffering from mental illness or addiction, depression. When there's a strained relationship at work that we can't resolve on our own. We find ourselves in a crumbling marriage. We're dealing with a defiant, rebellious son 
or daughter. When we have this overwhelming academic load, enormous financial bills piling up, whether those financial challenges are personal or whether they're the kinds of challenges that we're facing as a congregation when we think about the 2015 budget. It's when life confronts us with those situations and circumstances that we can't control and we can't overcome in our own strength, our own power, our own wisdom, that we begin to see the requirement of trusting in someone and something more powerful than us. We see the requirement of trusting in God. For example, like when we see these kings joining forces, coming and encamping together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel in verse 5 of Joshua 11. But again, it's precisely when the strength of the opponent is at its apex, precisely when the situation seems most impossible, that God calls Joshua and that God calls his people to trust in him and in his word. Joshua is not to trust in his own numbers, in his own strength, his own power, his own expertise. He's not to trust in any of those things. He's to trust in God. This is what God says to Joshua in verse 6. Right when he's facing this opposition, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. I'm going to give them all over to Joshua. Joshua's not going to do it in his own strength or his own power. He's to trust in God and in his word. These words in Joshua actually echo words that we read in Deuteronomy, those that Moses delivers to the people. Um, as they anticipate going into the promised land. So we read these words in Deuteronomy before Joshua 11. And God instructs his people through Moses at that time by saying, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, these exact circumstances, you shall not be afraid of them. It says the same thing. Then he says, for Yahweh, your God, is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel is to trust in God's power for them in these kinds of situations. And we're to trust in God's power for us when we're confronted with these kinds of situations. Overwhelming, impossible situations. We're called to trust in God's power for us. In fact, the reason God places us in these kinds of impossible, seemingly impossible situations is so that we can learn to trust him more. So we can grow in our trust, so his powers can be displayed, and so that we can glorify him and his power and strength for us. In other words, the reason God puts us in these kinds of situations is to bring words like Psalm 50, verse 15, into actuality. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. Notice that it's this day of trouble that motivates the call. When we realize that we're in trouble and we can't handle it, we are predisposed to call on the Lord. And when we call on the Lord in our day of trouble, the Lord says, I will deliver you, trust in me, and you will glorify me. That's his purpose in this. In our day of trouble, when we face this kind of daunting budget for 2015, call upon the Lord, he will deliver us, and we will glorify him for his power. So when faced in these kinds of situations, we can increase our self-effort, and then when that fails, we can try to run in fear, and then when we discover that we can't escape the situation, we can succumb to despair, or instead of doing any of those things, we can trust in God. We can trust God and his power and faithfulness in those situations. But what would that look like? 
What does it look like when we're trusting God? Well, we see here not only the requirement of trusting in God, but we also see the response of trusting in God. So let's look at that second. What was the response of Joshua and the Israelites? Well, look with me in verse 7. We read that they come suddenly against them, the enemies, by the waters of Merom and fell upon them, and they end up chasing them out until none of them remained. Seems like the situation was that these Canaanite armies were encamped temporarily in this hilly region of the waters of Merom, but they had intended to move a little further south to where the ground was a little bit more level to where their horses and chariots could be more mobile and effective as military weapons. But they never got the chance to move down into that flatter area because the Israelites attacked them immediately. And here's why the Israelites likely attacked them immediately. It's because trust in God and in his word empowered Israel to act in obedience and to act promptly and boldly in response. Joshua believed what God told him. So it empowered him to act in obedience. And here's really what the response of trusting in God is. Trusting in God and in his word empowers us to respond in obedience. That's the response of trusting God. Obeying him. It's interesting that throughout the book of Joshua and in many instances throughout the scriptures where we see the power of God and the promises of God to fight for his people, these are never seen as incentives to be lazy and to sit back and do nothing. The power of God and the promises of God to fight for us in Scripture are intended to motivate us toward obedient action. In other words, the reality and the promise that God fights for us is why we fight. We can act because God acts for us. We can fight because God fights for us. It it motivates us toward obedient action. And we see Joshua's obedient action here in verse 9, in response of trusting God and obedience to his command to hamstring the horses and to burn the chariots. Now, I know that hamstringing horses sounds like this cruel and unusual punishment. Likely what it was, it was, it was snipping a tendon on the hindquarters of the horse that would have rendered the horse useless for future military purposes. The horse could be used for other kinds of things, but no longer for military purposes. Not just for Israel's enemies, it couldn't be used for Israel after the, they hamstring the horses. And of course, we know that burning chariots means they couldn't be used in Israel's future military purposes either. So what we see here with the hamstringing of the horses and the burning of the chariots is an act declaring and demonstrating Israel's confession of Psalm 20 that we've already heard this morning in our call to worship. This act of Joshua demonstrates the verse 20 of of Psalms. I thought I had it up there. I don't have it up there. But we hear it in our call to worship this morning. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but not God's people. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our victory is in him. Our trust is in him. We also see Joshua's obedience as a reflection of trust in God in verse 12. All the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoted them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Joshua's obedient. In response to his trust, we see it most explicitly in verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Now listen to this. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. That's the response of trusting in God. Complete obedience. Now just as kind of a a side note here, we're in a season of officer nominations here at New Life. So you can nominate an elder 
or deacon that you think is qualified. If you want to look for the qualifications of an, of an officer in Christ church, you can look in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can read them there. But think about this too. Think about Joshua. What you want in a leader of God's people is someone who trusts God and responds in obedience. That's what you're looking for. And so if you have someone in, mind, someone in mind and you'd like to nominate that person, that process would be you go to that person and ask if they'd like to stand for nomination. You can submit their names. I think it's out by the welcome table, a place for nominations. But this is what you want, someone who obeys the Lord. Now another thing, just to make another side note, I know that what Joshua actually obeys on this occasion is a stumbling block for many readers of the Bible to wipe out the entire Canaanite population. Now, of course, we have to acknowledge that, that this act is an act of divine judgment against the Canaanites because of their wickedness. Other portions of Scripture tell us that. We also recognize that this act is an act of spiritual protection for Israel so that they don't fall into future idolatry by adopting the Canaanite gods. But I recognize that there's still tension there with the severity of this judgment. I could say more about that this morning. I'm, I'm guessing some of you want me to say more about that this morning, but I'm not going to say more about that this morning. Um, I have sent some supplementary notes to life group leaders. This is a life group question, so you may be dealing with this in life group tonight with a little bit more uh, extensively. And so if you're not in a life group, this is one of the reasons that you want to be part of a life group is because we can talk about things and discuss things that we don't have time for uh, all the time in the preaching of the word. And so uh, if you're not in a life group, life groups are still open. You can sign up for one, find out when one meets, find out where they meet, and even join one uh, this week. But I do hope you have some opportunity to talk about that this week in your life groups. But our focus now is on how trust in God is demonstrated by our obedience. If you're trusting God, you'll obey Him. And if you're not obeying God, you're not trusting Him. It's as simple as that. Every act of disobedience has behind it some level and some exposure of our heart that's not trusting God. If you're trusting God, you're obeying Him. So we can say that we trust God, slap it over all of our license plates, and put it on our currency. But unless we're obeying God, we're not trusting Him. Trusting in God means resisting that peer pressure to succumb to sin, even if resisting means a loss of friendship or it brings upon itself persecution. It means resisting that because trusting God means obedience. Trusting in God means accepting that God can and will use your weakness and your disability to show his power working through you. Trusting in God means taking courageous and bold steps toward addressing that strained relationship by implementing biblical principles of conflict resolution, no matter how hard that seems to be. Trusting God means taking courageous and bold steps in that. Trusting God means sticking it out and loving your spouse, your spouse faithfully in that crumbling marriage in hopes of restoration. And trusting God means that we will be wise stewards and that we will give sacrificially and obediently as God's word calls us to in the face of a challenging budget. That's what trusting God looks like. But I want us to note also the comment that's made in verse 18, that the conquest campaign was long. Joshua made war for a long time against those people. Some suggest seven years, because when Caleb first entered into the land, and by the time he got his inheritance, seven, seven years had passed. So seven long years of warfare here. That reminds us that trusting in God doesn't mean 
that obedience is going to make things easy. Nor should we think that if we obey God, all of our problems, our challenges, our difficulties, our afflictions are going to be overcome immediately. It's not that way. That peer pressure that you're facing, that strained relationship, that crumbling marriage, that overwhelming academic load, that financial struggle, that rebellious child, they might not be resolved overnight. Trusting in God typically requires a long obedience in the same direction. To borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. But ultimately we can say the result of trusting in God or the response of trusting in God is his word empowers us to respond in obedience. But where does that leave us then? If, If we trust in God in obedience doesn't resolve our problems, what does it do for us? Will God show himself faithful to deliver on his promises to deliver? Or are we just going to be in our problems forever? Can we trust God still? Well, we see finally the response, or the result, I'm sorry, the result of trusting in God. So that's our third point, the result. Joshua 11 records that the result of trusting in God for the Israelites is victory. Trusting in God results in victory. But I want you to see something, that in recording the successes and victories of Israel's conquest campaign, the writer of the book of Joshua deliberately saves a particular people for the very end. In verse 21, we read that at that time, at that time, it's very kind of unspecified period of time here, so that the author is deliberately putting this at the end of the conquest campaign in the north, that we read that Joshua cut off the Anakim from the hill country, and he destroyed their cities. But who are the Anakim? And why is the author of Joshua saving these people for the very end? Well, the Anakim are kind of like these, uh, these, these giant Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the land. We've read about them already in Numbers chapter 13. A whole generation earlier, 40 years earlier, when Moses first sent spies into the land, when they were poised to enter the promised land, he sent spies into the land, they come back and they give a negative report about how they can't take the land, and the reason they can't take the land is they find the presence of the Anakim there. Here's what we read in uh, Josh, or, uh, Numbers chapter 13. On this occasion, when the spies are coming back, here's what we read. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once. This is 40 years earlier than in the, the one we're reading about in the book of Joshua. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. That's the Anakim, the sons of Anak. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so the people on that occasion don't trust God in the face of the presence of the Anakim in the land. And as a result, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and none of that generation... None of that generation at that time enter into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And what do we learn here in Joshua chapter 11? We learn that the fears of that former generation were completely and utterly groundless in the face of God's power for his people. 
the Anakim represented absolutely no obstacle to the power of God in bringing his people into the land. That's what Joshua 11 is declaring to us. And that's why these Anakim are saved to the last. You know what, former generation? Those fears were groundless. There's nothing that's too big for your God to handle. Nothing in your life is too big for your God to handle. The problems at your job are not too big for God. The problems that you experience at school are not too big for God. The problems in your marriage are not too big for God. The problems that your children are facing and that you're facing with your children are not too big for God. Physical weakness and sickness, not too big for God. Life-threatening illnesses, not too big for God. Cancer is not too big for God. Depression, addiction, not too big for God. Financial problems, not too big for God. Enormous budgets, not too big for God. Terrorism, not too big for God. Unemployment, not too big for God. There is nothing in your future that is too big for God to handle. Ultimately, the result of trusting in God is your victory over all things. That's the result of trusting in God. Victory over all things. But wait a minute. What about when people actually lose their jobs? What about when people have to file for bankruptcy? What about when people fail their classes? What about when that marriage ends in divorce? What about when that child never comes back to the faith? What about when you get sick and you don't get better? I mean, those are realities in the world in which we live, right? Where's the victory then? Where's trusting in God leave us then? Can we still trust God in the face of those lingering hardships, those afflictions that don't go away? Well, the answer to that question is yes. You can trust God even in those situations because in those failures and those long struggles that you find yourself in, you can trust that God is working for your good to refine you and to sanctify you and to prepare you for glory. But even more than that, even more than that, you can trust that there are no riches, there are no provisions, there are no aspects of your health there is no good thing that God takes away from his children, those who trust in him, that he will not fully restore and more in the age to come. Because you can even be facing death and trust in the God of life to overcome that for you. Death is not too big for God to overcome. There is nothing that's too big for God for which you cannot trust him and his work for you. But how can you be sure? Perhaps some of you need another R this morning. And it's a reason for trusting in God. And here it is. God has sent a greater Joshua into the world to conquer his and our enemies. And he has sent this greater Joshua, and his name is Jesus, into the world to secure our entrance into a greater inheritance, a new heavens and a new earth, eternal life and glory. And here's how the greater Joshua accomplishes that for us. He goes to a cross and gives up his life. There's the reason for trusting in God. I mean, if you knew a father who gave his son in your place that you might live, if you knew someone that laid down his life for you, to deliver you and save you from torment by taking that upon himself 
wouldn't that incline your heart in, in the face of such a wondrous act of love to trust that person in every other situation in your life, even if you didn't fully understand what was going on? Wouldn't giving up their life for you build up some degree of credit for trusting them in all things? You can trust in the Father who gave his Son for sinners. You can trust in Jesus, the greater Joshua, who laid down his life that you might live. Because ultimately our trust is in the Jesus who rose from the dead and has guaranteed our victory through his death and resurrection. Ultimately our trust is in him who has ascended into heaven as the right hand of the Father above all power, dominion, and authority and has shown us that he is for us. So in the face of every difficulty, in the face of every challenge, we can know that ultimate victory is ours through the risen Christ and we can live and we can say with confidence, in God we trust. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you're a trustworthy God, that you are faithful to all of your promises and that there is nothing that is too powerful, too big for you to handle and to work for our redemption, our sanctification, and for our entrance into glory. Uh, Lord, we are slow to believe these things. But Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed, as we look to Jesus, crucified and risen again, may you build our trust in you, and may we live in light of that trust. In Jesus' name, amen.